Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Yes, hello everyone. Thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm grateful to uh, Chad and Elaine for inviting me to be part of the panel. And I am thankful for my fellow panelists. I have been looking forward to this time together. My full name is Jamulis Maramba Valiente Neighbors. I send my warmest greetings to you all from Kumi Island, what is now called San Diego, and from our watershed, the Los Peñasquitos River. I was born and raised in the town Dagupan, known for its fish bangus, in an archipelago consisting of over 7,600 islands in what is now called the Philippines. I am part Pangasinense from my mom and part Ilocana from my dad. And so I greet good afternoon, evening, or morning to you all from my parents' native languages. Masantos yangaram, olabi, o kabwasan edsikayun amin, naimbag nga malam, the Philippine national language is a standardized version of Tagalog. It's more familiar to me than my parents' languages, so I would like to greet you all as well in it. Magandang hapon, o gabi, o umaga sa inyong lahat. I would first like to say that what I'm sharing here is not the story of all Filipinos. I do hope that you can all somehow find something that connects us to each other as relatives. My family's story of immigration and settlement in the United States is intertwined with the invasion of Hawaii and the imprisonment of Queen Lilio Kalani in 1893 and U.S. annexation of Hawaii in 1898. The same year the U.S. colonized the Philippines after 377 years of colonial rule by Spain. This is a very basic chart of my family's chain migration story. The Valiente side of my family were all able to come because of in-laws who first came to the U.S. as contract workers for the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association. The HSPA recruited single males from the Ilocos region in the Philippines in 1906 to replace the Japanese workers who were striking due to low pay and substandard living and working con conditions. The Japanese and the Fil Filipinos were kept segregated to discourage working class solidarity, making it possible for the HSPA to also take advantage of the Filipinos with similar dehumanizing wages and conditions. Initially, Filipinos were expected to return to their homeland after their three-year contract was completed. However, some of the contract workers remained and began to establish a Filipino community in Hawaii, including the in-laws of my father's in-laws. So you would see that in the chain. Two Immigration and Nationality Acts also facilitated our family immigration story. The 1952 McCarran-Walter Act, which finally removed the practice of barring people of Asian descent from citizenship, and the 1965 Hart-Seller Act, which emphasized family reunification for U.S. citizens and permanent residents 
by exempting their immediate relatives from visa quotas. Our Valiente family started in Hawaii, but because according to my dad, the only jobs available to Filipinos there were either at restaurants or hotels, he and some of his siblings relocated in 1986 for more job opportunities to what is now called Long Beach, California, Tong Bay Land. It was in a makeshift one bedroom house, house behind the garage where our family of four at the time reunited in 1993. But it was while I was still in the Philippines where I began the process of assimilation and internalization of the US racial hierarchy. President William McKinley in 1898 declared that benevolent assimilation was the mission, supposedly to Christianize, civilize, and educate the Filipinos. Our education system was Americanized and they taught us English, which is why it is one of our official languages and why out of all of the 180 plus languages in the Philippines, I know English best. In my school as a child, students were fined for speaking another language besides English during classes. According to Abe Ignacio, Enrique de la Cruz, Jorge Emanuel, and Helen Toribio, in their work titled The Forbidden Book, The Philippine-American War in Political Cartoons, political cartoonists depicted Filipinos as children, animals, and helpless feminine figures and likened them to other racialized groups in the US, mainly indigenous peoples, black peoples, and the Chinese. Furthermore, the US created a racial hierarchy among the Filipinos, putting the so-called civilized Christians at the top and placing the so-called less civilized Muslims and animists at the bottom. That helps explain why in the Philippines, I observed adults around me who use names of indigenous people's tribes derogatorily as punishment for unwanted behaviors or for undesirable characteristics such as being too dark. I also see why in the US, my immediate community leaned into the myth of meritocracy and the model minority stereotype it allowed us to evade recognizing and addressing systemic and structural racism. So when we observed racial disparities, it was easier to attribute them to culture. In middle school and high school, I observed adults around me who implied that we may not be white, but at least we are not like those people, mainly black and other brown people. Remember, I arrived here in 1993, just after the uprisings in Los Angeles due to the beating of Rodney King and the Save Our State initiative against undocumented immigrants with Prop 187 and the OJ Simpson trials. Whether in the Philippines, in the US and in its diaspora, Filipinos have much work to do in confronting what post-colonial scholars describe as colonial mentality as well as transgenerational and transnational anti-Indigenous and anti-Black upbringing. Ironically, we also need to confront a twisted version of anti-immigrant rhetoric. We need to dismantle all of these as part of our process towards healing, not only ourselves, but all our relations. A phrase I borrow from Indigenous writer and activist Wynonna LaDuke but it is impossible to face what we do not know. If I hadn't learned about the Spanish and US American colonization of the Philippines, I would have continued accepting the lie that somehow God created and upholds a racial hierarchy. 
and that Filipinos are inferior to, must be grateful for, and be submissive to our former colonizers. When I first told my parents about the Philippine-American War two decades ago now, my mom gently shushed me and then said in a lowered voice, don't talk about that anymore. We're in here in America now. I could understand why my mom did that, to protect me from the potential harm of falling from grace in white people's eyes because I was raising questions and consciousness about the violence white Americans committed against Filipino people in the name of empire and capitalism entangled with Christian paternal love. The silence and silencing did not sit well with me. So I listened even more intently, even if it meant opening up myself to hearing ghosts. In one of my undergraduate ethnic studies classes, a professor assigned sociologist Avery Gordon's book titled Ghostly Matters, Haunting in the Sociological Imagination. Gordon argues that we need to give close attention to what is repressed and to who is missing, not just the dead, but also the disappeared, as well as the ones hidden or rendered invisible via erasure. Even the things taught to us as history, it's over, it was a long time ago, or it's over, it was a long time ago. One of my restorative solidarity practices is to resist that message of it's in the past, it's over. As a professor of sociology, haunting is a feature of my pedagogy because I would like for my students to be haunted, to be troubled, to listen to what our past says about our present and perhaps future. I would like for them to recognize how privileges of upward mobility and property ownership are linked to genocide, displacement, enslavement, labor market segregation, and redlining. And with that recognition to move towards empathy and solidarity with those who experience oppression and marginalization and to stir up what the late John Lewis called good trouble. Another one of my restorative solidarity solidarity practices is to really grapple with how decolonization work is not simply metaphorical, to quote scholars Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang. Tuck and Yang insist that decolonization work is not about settler futurity, but indigenous futurity. How various settlers imagine indigenous claims of land back are likely wrapped in fear and warped in fear because we are afraid that what was done to indigenous peoples will be done to the settlers. Based on what I have been learning about indigenous cosmology, I think that fear is unfounded. I have so much more to learn about practicing restorative solidarity with indigenous peoples. And as I do, I would like to practice the improvisational approach, yes and. Yes, land acknowledgements and what else? I can support indigenous peoples resisting the pipelines. Yes, yes. And I can support the Kumeyaay people in their defense against the wall. Yes. And I can support indigenous businesses, follow indigenous social media platforms, and amplify their voices. 
Yes, and I can start imagining our household budget to include paying land taxes to the original stewards of this land, similar to the Shumi land tax in Oakland, California. Yes, and I will integrate indigenous people's voices and stories as central in our faith gatherings, like the BKI has modeled for us these past years. Yes, and I can attend BKI again next year. In closing, I would like to touch briefly on Melissa Fung's piece, Our People of Color Settlers Too, one of our wonderful sources for BKI this year. I appreciated so much her discussion that the term settler is not a unified monolithic subject position, but stratified. Fung states that settlers of color have been used to blame other racialized groups' economic conditions, and have also been blamed for economic conditions hurting white settlers, as with the murder of Vincent Chin in 1982. Blame continues today. The organization Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate received over 2,800 accounts of anti-Asian attacks from mid-March to the end of 2020, and those are just the ones reported. More recently this year, there have been a string of attacks against the AAPI community, especially against elders. It is no doubt that the phrase Chinese virus initiated by the previous administration stoked the violence. Anti-Asian sentiment is not new and it has not disappeared, but because of sparse media coverage, it has been rendered invisible. In pursuit of restorative solidarity with hurting communities, may we listen with intention and may we be moved to take action. Thank you again. And now I welcome Sue to speak. Okay, let's just breathe a little bit because that was that was amazing. And um, thank you. I'm so glad to me that you went first um, setting us historical context and giving us words and a framework for us to um, talk. And so um, thank you so much. Um, peace be with you, good troublemakers. It's good to be with you. I look forward to many of seeing you every year. Um, some of you I've gotten to know well, some of you I know, each, you know your faces, um, but have not had the opportunity to meet. Um, I'm so glad that we're all here. Um, I just wanted to, yes, I send you greetings from the land of Tonga people, where I, where I have lived as an immigrant for the last over 40 years. Um, I'm grateful for the way that Tonga people have cared for the land and the continued legacy and presence on the land with resilience, creativity, trauma, and Han. I also want to acknowledge the land of the Korean people where I was born still divided by man-made, American-made borders. Um, and technically we're still at war without a peace treaty with North Korea. I carry this division with me as part of the Korean diaspora, often feeling connected to both lands, but never feeling fully rooted in one. Like Jimmy said, I wanna also acknowledge that this weekend is Lunar New Year and the year of the ox, a year to plow forward with full strength and determination. However, the weeks leading up to this holiday has been filled with much grief and pain and rage 
as we have seen AAIP leader, uh, elders pushed, slashed, and even killed in broad daylight. And these incidents of violence were racially motivated and targeted. And so we, with you, I hold the joy and the grief of our community this weekend. Racism persists. It has, as Jimmy said, um, it is not new, but we see it amplified. Um, at such a moment. So I want to acknowledge all of that. Um, and in spite of all of that, we come here and this weekend has been so rich. Um, my mind is still regurgitating the deep words from day one. So I'm not even like, you know, Chad, it's going to take me days for me to get to even your amazing Bible study because these phrases, power of place, reclaiming connection to the land, if you are connected to the land, you've got lineage. If you're coming to the land, you have legacy. These challenging words um, have made me remember something that um, my teacher, right before I immigrated uh, to America, has said to me. I was not. I was eight years old. I was in second grade. I think I finished like one month. And my teacher, my second grade teacher, told me as I was leaving and I was saying my goodbyes. She said. Remember your land. And um, it's still very, uh, <laughs> okay, why am I crying? Um, I'm supposed to be giving a presentation. Um, I literally, as an eight-year-old, dug up some soil and I put it in a plastic bag and I brought it, not knowing what the heck that meant. Um, but I think God honor that little <laughs> girl's heart to remember the land. Um, I came to the U.S. on, okay, uh, it's like testimonial time. <laughs> um, I came to the U.S. Um, May of 1980, the month when Korea was cracking down on democratic protests in the city of Gwangju, um, killing over 2,000 civilians in nine days. There was political unrest because we were under a uh, military dictatorship. So this political unrest um, that brought us also, there was also internal unrest brewing in our home. Uh, my family was poor because my family had, my father had suffered from PTSD um, and couldn't keep a job. Um, we didn't have the word P PTSD in 1980 as a Korean immigrant, right, or ready to come to America. So my dad really didn't get diagnosed with PTSD until he was in his 60s. But um, he was suffering from PTSD after he served in the Korean War at the age of 17. Um, and it wounded him deeply. And so he had mental instability that kind of surfaced in his 30s. Um, and so as with all, all immigration, there's a push and pull factor, right? And so these are the, the factors that pushed us um, and the pull factor was that we had an opportunity to come to America um, through family-based visa that Jimmy had also eloquently uh, shared. Uh, 23 of us came on two planes within a week. Um, and we attributed you know, this to our aunt, um, but recognizing as we are analyzing how we came, we also realized the deeper connection came through um, her husband's sister who was married to an, a white American GI. And for many Asian Americans who grew up hearing 
go back to your country. Um, we are here because the empire came to us to control our land and our lives. We are here because you came to us. The Korean War that officially began in 1950 never ended. And the American military presence in Korea has persisted to the present. There are 80 bases, over 28,000 military US forces in South Korea right now. The largest US base in the world is in Pyeongtaek, South Korea. We came to America to have a fresh start, but the trauma that we carried, that my dad carried, that has been passed down to me, um, also came and did not leave us at the border. And the trauma compounded by a white, non-white immigrants to the US and the things that we have faced here has compounded to the trauma that we brought. Um, the cost of living in America is assimilation. And that was very prevalent when I came when I was um, in 1980. Um, you know, every time I had a history book, I wanted, I looked to the back to see if they're gonna say anything about Korea. Um, there's usually a, one paragraph and it was always about the Korean, Korean War without any kind of context. And so um, it just invisibility, right? Erasure of our story and our experiences lead, led many of us Asian Americans into silence because we felt like we couldn't really, we didn't really know our history. And, um, and because we don't know our history, it makes us question the validity of our issues that we want to talk about, but we, we don't even know if it's valid for us to talk about it. And this is really expressed really well in the book, um, Minor Feelings by Kathy Hong Park, Pat, Kathy Park Hong, sorry. Um, and so what we heard is that you know the Korean War, uh, basically that America saved us from communism and that we should truly be really, um, really grateful. And so uh, this lack of history, lack of connecting to the larger issues um, helps us disconnect from the larger issues of others. Um, a lot of us are also on survival mode, again, bringing all this trauma from um, your home country and feel this this uh, pressure to become the model minority, to benefit and provide security to our parents who have sacrificed so much to be here. And so these unspoken expectations to fulfill filial piety keeps, you know, kept our focus very narrow. It wasn't until um, 92 LA uprising when I was in college that my little Korean American Christian bubble cracked open and uh, because my city was burning and Koreatown was burning. And I couldn't make sense of what was happening. But my eyes began to see the systemic issues of police brutality, um, especially targeting Black people. And somehow all of that is connecting to my community. Um, instead of addressing the problem of police violence again, right? Um, the media re-narrated, shifted to focus on Black Korean issues and, um, and that problem. And it, of course it was there, but instead of addressing the systemic deep-rooted problem, um, the strategy of divide and conquer was used again. Um, my eyes began to see how our liberation is connected to one another, how injustice 
for one community is injustice for all. And I began to see my privilege, my complicity, and also at the same time recognizing how I have been marginalized. So I started getting these lenses to see the bigger world. I began to see solidarity work of AAIP with black and brown communities. Um, but still, I did not see many connections with indigenous communities. It wasn't until I was in the Mennonite church in 2008 that I began to build authentic relationships with indigenous people, peoples on Turtle Island. And that connection opened up opportunities for me to build relationships with indigenous peoples in Asia. And of course, the seeds of deeper solidarity work and relationships also uh, were brought here, built here through BKI, where I've also met many amazing um, indigenous leaders who are also present in this, on this call today. Um, and I'm also examining um, within my own denomination. I'm in this funky space, right, where I am a person of color um, in leadership of a denomination, a historic peace church. Um, and so there's power <laughs> in, in recognizing that. But there's also, I also see a lot of, um, oh, and, and I actually took this job because the executive director of MCUSA right now is Glenn Guyton, the first Black executive director. Um, and my other bosses are awesome too. If you guys know Iris DeLeon Hartshorn, she's a, a Mesic American Indian um, who is also my boss that I constantly learn from. Um, and so it's under that leadership that we are trying to navigate white supremacy that is still so alive and well in our, in our uh, denomination. And so um, one of the ways that I'm trying to connect and build you know, uh, restorative solidarity is to name where indigenous people have been harmed by our denomination. For example, the Hopi Mission School, there was financial embezzlement that um, where the superintendent had embezzled over a million dollars through the Hopi School. Um, we've also seen congregations led by white pastors of indigenous uh, churches, which is problematic, leading them out of our conferences, out of the denomination, um, with LGBTQ issues, withdrawing the economic and relational network and resources that a lot of these um, folks in our community and in indigenous communities had. Um, and so we're trying to address a lot of these things um, denominationally. Um, to me, solidarity looks like what my friend Erica has said, um, she said, you know, all these people during the pandemic are saying during these uncertain times. And she said, when has it ever been certain? And with that kind of framework, I begin to see world in a different way, right? She's like, our community, there's nothing, nothing has ever been certain. And I said, you're right. And as immigrants, I understand what that means. And so, you know, we start connecting, building relationships. I'm learning that I need to know my own story connected to the grand, the bigger framework so that I can listen to others and interweave them more fully. Um, I'm learning about doctrine of discovery and how it has harmed and, and, and the, a lot of the perpetrator of that was the church. And so how do we deconstruct that? Um, I'm learning to build relationship with grandmas 
um, indigenous grandmas. They've been, they're so amazing. And I've just, I feel so connected and so grateful to have relationships with them and listen to them, you know, hear the deep love, loving words from them, um, building relationships with AAIP, uh, AAPI indigenous leaders, um, joining circles like Roots, reclaiming our own truths and stories, uh, which, was be which was begun by um, indigenous uh, North Cheyenne uh, woman, as well as a Filipina, indigenous Filipina um, who are doing this work and creating circles for us to talk about um, the deep, deep words and deep narratives that we hold, such as where are you from? I hate that phrase, you know, when I get asked, where are you from? I know a lot of Asian Americans really don't like that. But in that circle, that just brought us to another level. And it was a level of healing that I never really, you know, I'm just like, I hate that phrase, but we're talking about where are we from? Where are our roots? You know, and, and we just, yeah, it was, it was a powerful circle. Um, I think one of the biggest things that, that I'm trying to do with our indigenous leaders in our denomination is to build and redefine and reclaim our words and language um, where we center elders, honor, ancestor, acknowledgement, silence, acceptance, visibility, collective grief, Han, you centering our community, our language, our narratives around these words rather than the words that are narrated to us by the empire. Um, decolonizing theology of scarcity to abundance that we don't have to be working within this framework of a pie and for us to fight for this little piece. Um, where we can seek justice for all and reimagine an American dream where we can all recognize our connectivity, celebrate our interdependence and share generously and live collectively. And to dance, I've also been part of an indigenous circle of dancing five times a day um, and just to embody and to release and to celebrate um, and to laugh and to sing. These are the ways that I am trying to um, stay in solidarity and to practice it in my life. Thanks. And I believe now we go to Kiki. Um, thank you so much for that, uh, Sue and me and everyone. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me here. Um, uh, so much of the of what of what's already been shared is so similar to mine, and so I, and I think that's kind of the point <laughs> to see what threads we can we can pull out in common. Um, my family's migration story um, is my migration story. I am from Guatemala, from the Maya people, the Mam uh, people of the highlands of the mountains. Uh, the migration story of my family, though, begins within Guatemala, where there was so much migration from the rural areas to the cities. And so while my parents were both from different, the opposite ends of Guatemala, they met in Guatemala City. And this has been the trend throughout the world now that now, uh, several years ago, the, pop the world population surpassed 50% of uh, the world population now lives in urban areas. So 
much of that is not accidental. It is being just continual dispossession of land. Um, and a lot of it, of course, is violent. And other, other, at other moments, it's nonviolent, um, but it has violence backing it up. And what I mean by it's nonviolent, it, it makes it so that people uh, ourselves, we start to believe that the city is where we need to be if we want to be respected in the world, if we want to be quote unquote modern. And so uh, we turn our backs so much on um, the rural and the, the countryside and, and Mother Earth in general. Uh, which is a, a, an enormous illness, speaking, since we're speaking of, uh, of illnesses and, and haunting histories. Um, there was a civil war throughout the time of my, my mother and my father's entire life in Guatemala. In the 70s, there was, civil, uh, there was an earthquake, a massive earthquake in Guatemala City. My mom had already come to the U.S. to serve as a nanny. And uh, went back to Guatemala, met my dad, and but after the earthquake, they decided to migrate, and they came with my sisters across the border in Tijuana uh, and in Cal to California, and I ended up being born here, the one born here. And my mom jokes; she's not joking. She was hoping that I'd be her anchor baby, except that the laws had changed the date the year before or something, so it didn't work. So she had to wait many, many, many years, along with the rest of my family, sadly. Uh, to get papers, which happened with the 1986 amnesty. Uh, since then, um, I was I was raised throughout my entire life to be to just behave, be a good student. It was very very clear in the family who the privileged one was, and that was me because I was born here and I had citizenship, I had papers, and no one else had it except for my younger cousin. And so all dreams were on me. And so I tried not to disappoint. I was a very good student. I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, I listened to what the teacher said. Um, and it led to a lot of, sadly, I noticed later in life, self-hatred in that I was embarrassed of my mother when she would come to school, for example, because she didn't speak any English. Um, and I just wanted to be normal, which you know means assimilated into US society. Um, Assimilation into you, the U.S. was never problematized or critiqued in um, my childhood. I didn't even gain really a critical consciousness until I went to college. And it, oh. wasn't, it was the master's program, even not even the undergrad. Um, but it matched very well with me because I was always questioning things, but silently because I didn't want to question them out loud. Um, and so when I came into critical consciousness, it was through reading Hart and Negri's Empire, Marx, feminist writing, the black radical tradition was enormous for me. The Zapatistas who I later uh, learned about and met and now accompany uh, in Chiapas. And of course the Palestinian movement, uh, which taught me above all how, that I could say no to the world that I didn't like. There was this entire nation there saying no, and they've been saying no for more than seven decades. I went, you know, from the travels that I've undergone in my life into gaining this critical consciousness, it, at first it, it would make me so upset when others weren't there too. And I would, I would get into shouting matches um, because I, I feel like I felt like I had seen the world differently. Like there was this truth, this, this bigger truth that, that we were being, um, and we were all being deceived. It was being hidden from us. And I would get very angry when other people wouldn't see it or didn't want to talk about it. And uh, since then, like I've learned 
I've learned so much about how to have these conversations because I learned so much about trauma. And in particular, reading Frantz Fanon, um, uh, a Black uh, revolutionary uh, psychiatrist and uh, theoretician who, um, who joined the Algerian revolution and, and sadly was killed by leukemia in, uh, when he was 36 in the 60s. Reading that book, Black Skin, White Masks, uh, was something that allowed me to better understand so much of the self-hatred that I experienced among my own family. My, my family does not like to say that we're indigenous, even though my last name is Kikivish, everybody in Guatemala knows exactly where it comes from. Uh, my dad, especially, he, you know, he was very, he was made fun of all of his life because most uh, or a large part of indigenous peoples in the Americas uh, had their last names changed to a Spanish surname or Portuguese surname. And our last name did not, it remained. And so my dad was not able to even pretend that he was not Native American because the last name said it. And so I, I, he grew up to be a very racist person trying to um, pretend he was not Native American, but also very anti-Black. Very many migrants, when they come into the United, United States, they very, very quickly learn the logic of the United States. You're in survival mode. And if you want to survive, if you want to stand a chance of survival, what they, this is what they learn. You can't be around Black people. If you want white people to like you, you can't be around black people. And so then we have these discourses of the, of the more deserving, which is like, you know, we're, we're hard workers, we're not criminals, things like that, which is all coded for we're not black because we learn very quickly as was said, you know, if, um, if you're not white, well, at least don't be black. And so then this is the hierarchy that we learn in entering the United States, although it exists throughout the Americas too, uh, largely with indigenous peoples, at the bottom, especially in societies that don't have a large black community, indigenous people are that structural inferior position of blackness uh, together with black people who do exist. Um, but in the United States, it ends up being very, very clear that there is a hierarchy of colorism that um, has material effects. And those material effects are your chances of survival. And um, thankfully, when my when my family migrated, they came to Oxnard, which is not known as a big uh, community for Black people, but around us, it was Black and Brown people. And so I, I didn't understand anti-Blackness, um, like the logic of it. Like I, I thought that it was all just a moral individual um, uh, idea. And later, I understood it's a it's a structural idea. And it, it defines of whether you your what your chances of survival are, and so this is the role of assimilation that um, that I've seen. It's sadly not talked about enough in a lot of immigrant rights discourses. There's um, the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant. The good immigrant speaks English, is a hard worker, has been here forever, didn't cross. You know, it was a kid. It was their parents that are at fault. For example, this is the discourse, and and this is this is basically the logic of the United States, and not just the United States, but the West, and that that uh, difference needs to be ranked as um, as in in terms of a measure of value of superiority and inferiority with whiteness at the top, white supremacy, which we talk a lot about if we talk about you know if we're in ethnic studies or if we're concerned about these questions, we don't often talk about 
its opposite pole that is very complementary, and that is anti-Blackness. And that seems to be what's actually supreme, uh, superior, is anti-Blackness, because not everybody's a white supremacist, but the majority of people are anti-Black, even Black people. There, there's a lot of division within Black people of trying to be the good Black person versus the bad Black person. This is, this is such a, a, a deadly, destructive logic um, that we're living. And it's not something that is explicitly told to us, but it's something that is just so common. No one has to tell us. It's, we learn that this is the pattern of this society. Learning again, though, that so much of this does come from trauma, real trauma. And I learned this the most in doing my work on Palestine, the question of Israel. Massive trauma uh, with the Jewish uh, struggle, especially in, in World War II. And sadly, the response was to join empire in order to survive, even though there had been so many debates among Jews about how to struggle. And some of them were um, assimilation, for sure, which is part of joining empire. Uh, the most interesting ones to me are, are the Bund movement, for example, the communist, uh, internationalist, socialist movement that understood this Jewish struggle as not just specifically about Jews, but something much bigger. Uh, so that really has helped me in my work is really understanding this work of trauma, but then it opens up more questions. Okay, so then what do we do? It ends up making the beast even bigger in a lot of ways because now it's internal. So how do then we exercise it? Um, and um, so I'm very grateful to the work that Chad and Elaine are doing and like forcing us to go through that um, haunting. All of us need to go through that. We can't really evade it. We need to go through it and compost it to be able to be strong enough to create something else, which is a big part of the work that I do is trying to point out how the dominant world runs through this logic and really the only way we can really live together is by exiting that world and its logic and creating other worlds with other logics and many of those other worlds already exist and they've existed in the past and maybe they've been extinguished but there, there's so much to learn and um from so many from so many ways of relating from so many other peoples um so well then just to wrap up then when I think about solidarity with indigenous people. It's a it's an interesting question in my context because I am indigenous, but from a context that wishes that it was, you know, from a family that wishes it were not indigenous and has tried everything that it could possibly do short of changing our last name uh, to not be indigenous. I think about uh, then uh, the role of migrants into lands, indigenous peoples migrating into lands that were in our ancestral lands. And that's, that's the case of me and my family. Although if we follow the corn, we see that there was migration happening for thousands of years on these lands. Uh, and we follow the corn, we see it throughout the Americas. And that's a testament to that. Uh, but then the question for me then isn't really like about indigenous blood, it's more about what does indigenous mean? Because if my father could find a way to capitalize on his indigeneity, he's the type of person that would, but he actually wouldn't have the, he wouldn't be following the cosmology of our ancestral uh, relations, which, which I think is what's important about 
indigenous peoples is um, that many still hold seeds and potentials for living otherwise, rather than just the identity of indigeneity. What is the subjectivity? How is it that we live in the world? How is it that we relate in the world? Because not everyone who has indigenous blood is at all interested in living otherwise. They're more interested in uh, surviving or being part of the dominant class. Even if that may not be a possibility for many, it's still a desire. And that's something that's very real and we have to talk about, especially those of us doing movement work. And so then I also think about solidarity. What does that mean? So first, like, what is the word? How are we understanding the word indigenous? And how are we then understanding the word solidarity? And I don't understand myself in solidarity with anyone if the way that we understand solidarity is uh, kind of like charity. I Like with Palestinians, I'm not in solidarity with Palestinians. I accompany Palestinians. I struggle in my context so that their struggle can be stronger and their struggle helps my struggle be stronger. So my understanding of solidarity is more like accompaniment, but I hesitate to use that word, even if I am in solidarity, um, because uh, a lot of the time it's used as charity. Like my life is great and I'm just gonna say like, yeah, what's happening to you is wrong and I'm in solidarity with you and things should be good, but I'm not gonna actually do anything to make it so that things are good for you, but other than just say that I'm in solidarity. That to me is just not a type of solidarity that's even at all meaningful. It's more about the making oneself feel good. But because this problem is structural and it's not individual, then we, if we're going to be in solidarity, we need to talk about dismantling these structural positions of superiority and inferiority, create other worlds where those don't exist where we can respect difference in all of its beauty and we can all share the world with all of our differences rather than, rather than tolerating our differences, actually have an idea of how it is that we can sh share the world precisely because of our differences and how is it that because of our differences, that's why we're equal rather than uh, it's our differences that make us unequal, which is the status quo situation. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.